This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is God's word. So we see here, Jesus goes beyond the borders of his assigned mission. Uh, Jesus heads north from Gennesaret, past the borders of Israel. We'll see up here in a minute, uh, to two prominent northern cities paired together, Tyre and Sidon. It was a long journey um, for he and his disciples. And of course, uh, had they a a vehicle or a car, would have been just a a short half-day drive. And of course, if Jesus went together with his disciples in a vehicle, it would have been a Honda, as everybody knows, because the apostles were in one accord. (laughs) Please be civic about this now, okay? (laughs) I mean, it was a long odyssey up to Tyre and Sidon. I mean, jeez. Okay, so he goes with his disciples, his apostles, and we're told this in Matthew 15, in Matthew's account of this story. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. She said, have mercy on me, O son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he affirms that his mission is to Israel, God's chosen people. Because he he first brings to them the good news that he will live the righteous life that they could not, not David, not Abraham, not Noah, not Moses. No one can live the righteous life that God required. So they'll have a choice through Jesus. One day before the throne of their father, they can choose their own righteousness or they can choose Jesus' righteousness. So why then, if his mission is to Israel, does he travel beyond the borders of his mission? It's the only time he does it that we know of in all of Scripture. And answering that question will not only be helpful to understanding this morning's message, but gives us an opportunity to review a little bit where we've gone, where we've come from, where we're going uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark focuses us, as readers, on three groups of people with which we can all identify different points, right, during our reading, whether it be the disciples, whether it be the Pharisees, or this other group. So we'll start with the apostles or disciples. Uh, First, Jesus called the first four to himself. Then, 
he calls Levi the tax collector, then all 12 apostles with the appointment to preach and to pray for others, for, for healing and for demonic oppression. Jesus tells them these hard-to-get parables, but privately he explains these parables to his, to his apostles. Yet they still fail to grasp that Jesus is the God who's come to both rescue them and to live the life that they could not live. They can't quite get it. They almost get it one time when they're on a boat and there's this huge windstorm as they're traveling across the Sea of Galilee. And they almost, almost get who Jesus is at this point, but they don't. So they continue on with Jesus. They experience the rescue power of Jesus when he sends them out two by two to pray out demons and disease and to preach along the way. And they're nearest to Jesus. Of all the groups we see in the Gospel of Mark, they're the nearest in proximity to Jesus, yet they don't quite get him. They still don't quite get him. They assume they're accepted by Jesus at different points. Oh, well, we're with them. God must love us. He must favor us. Now, who are you again? <laughs> That's the question that they ask. Who are you, Jesus? That's the first group. Second group are the already religious. Those whom the outsiders think are insiders with God. These are the Pharisees and the scribes. Their question for Jesus is, can we accept you? And we see this, right? We see them going around to essentially fact-find about Jesus. From the moment he heals a paralytic, to the calling of Levi, to asking why his disciples don't follow the traditional rules about the Sabbath about hand-washing purity, about tithing. They are on a fact-finding mission to answer that question, can we accept this guy, this rabbi Jesus? We have, they continue to pull the disciples, the apostles, towards their example. We want you to be like us. Why aren't you more like us? And it would be most natural for the disciples to assume of Jesus' calling, finally, we're like the Pharisees. Finally, we were outsiders, now we're insiders. We're like the Pharisees. And that's why Jesus actually in chapter 8, and we're going to find this out next week, will say to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It would be natural to assume that you're called to be like them and you're not. But there is another pull, a third group. That's the examples of outsiders becoming insiders the least likely people, expressing personal need, and so personal dependence on Jesus. That's the third strand we see here. They ask the question of Jesus, will you accept us? Will you take us in to your fold? Every person who has truly trusted Jesus gets to this point. You may have started out asking the question, can I accept this Jesus into my life should I believe in him? But when you really encounter the real Jesus, and hope you know this experience, it is all about Jesus. Will you take me? I am a sinner. I recognize I am undeserving. Will you take me? Thank you. And so there are those who Jesus calls family, not necessarily those right, who he grew up with, or not necessarily even his apostles, but those, he says, who do the will of my Father. They're tax collectors, a bleeding woman, it's an executive pastor of a temple, it's a demon-harassed man, it's thousands of people who've never really had a leader, 
they come to Jesus eager, expectant, desperate, recognizing him as their only hope. And so they ask the question, will you accept us? Will you take us? Will you help us? All of these, these three strands of people, the disciples or the apostles, the Pharisees, the unlikely insiders, all converge in chapter 8 when the apostles finally make their decisive response to Jesus and the Pharisees make theirs. So we're getting to that point. It's all leading to this point in chapter 8. Now, we witnessed two weeks ago, Jesus tried to show the 12 that just because you're an apostle, just because you're preaching about me, you're praying about me, you're physically near me, you need to still personally respond to me for who I am. It's not enough that you go to church or you look like a Christian. You have to respond to me for who I am, your Savior. We see that this, the apostles are still in that mode. They just assume they're in. They just assume they've arrived. They assume acceptance. Also in chapter 7, we just saw last week that the Pharisees make their strongest case yet that the apostles should cave in and accept their rules for being religious. They ought to follow their rules. And so I think why Jesus heads outside the borders is because he wants to make to his apostles his strongest case yet of an outsider becoming an insider. The Pharisees are pulling at them. Be like us. You can be accepted by God if you just follow these rules. And Jesus wants to pull back. We've got to get outside of Israel. I want you to see that it doesn't depend on who you are, your upbringing, or your religious history, but making a personal response to me as your Savior. Oh man, does he ever. Does he ever pull them back? I love this story of an outsider becoming an insider, especially because it's not just a story, but history. And if it's really real, if it's really history, it is the greatest, most unlikely example of faith that my ears have ever heard. Well, we think about here for the next 20 minutes or so, which has behind it hours worth of study and meditation this week, which has behind it centuries of scholarship and thousands of sermons about this text. This woman got in 20 seconds. 20 seconds to respond, during which time she has to go from desperation about her daughter to silent rejection to a riddling insult about dogs. Consider, it'd be like a physician patiently listening through your tears about your sick little girl to him silently walking out of the room to him delivering his final words to you, which are kind of a parable riddle delivered in a Robert Downey Jr. kind of tone. Right? A little bit snarky. What do you do with this? Such a confusing and short moment. This woman rightly understands the riddle and becomes the only person in recorded history who answers a parable of Jesus from within. Right? From within the parable, in the moment. She completes Jesus' sentence, as it were. She's just completely tracking with him. It's one of these moments where it's just her and Jesus and nothing else can distract her. How does she so get Jesus in this moment? Here's the key, folks, the key for this morning. It's her unyielding belief in the goodness of the Savior. 
Scripture, which frees her to forget herself and hear the real Jesus. She could have heard a lot else in that moment, a lot to distract her, because it is a strange moment. It is a moment unlike Jesus has ever uttered or or been like. And yet with crystal clear focus, she unyieldingly clings to Jesus and ultimately gets to see the goodness of Jesus displayed in the healing of her daughter. It's amazing. Frees her to forget self and hear the real Jesus. And how good does that sound, by the way? To completely forget self. Isn't that an amazing feeling? Maybe you've experienced times and little seasons of this or moments where you just don't even worry about self-concern, selfishness, self-awareness, self-pity. It just melts away. And you can hear exactly what Jesus has to say to you. Not hunches, not a sense about what God might be saying, but the Savior's words to you. Made possible by a woman exercising belief that goes beyond borders. And nobody would have blamed her if she walked away. Right? In fact, that would have been the most realistic outcome. In despair, insulted, despondent. But instead, she cements her place as the New Testament Jacob. Right? She wrestles with God and will not let go. Until he gives her an answer. Consider the obstacles for her unyielding belief. That her unyielding belief must overcome. Number one, we're going to see five of these here. Demonic torment that forces her to the feet of Jesus. My nephew, uh, Matthew, first suffered seizures in 2005, such that they set him back developmentally. The sweetest kid you'll ever meet. Um, My brother and sister-in-law raised him well, and they thought they were in the clear until a year and a half ago where he experienced uh, two more uh, seizures. So homework social situations, sports, how to respond and discipline, all become endued with further pressure. They even wear down, my brother. Demonic torment sounds so out there. They usually carried with it physical manifestations akin to seizures and some kind of personality distortion. We often don't think of that side of demonic torment, but it was tiring. Understand this mom who comes to Jesus was going through the daily grind and pressure of trying to raise a daughter who's never really herself, who can never really be alone. She's constantly tired, never able to leave her side. She immediately, it says here in Scripture, she immediately goes. She risks leaving her daughter. We, we, we know in this case if she went alone, she almost certainly at this point was a single mom, maybe even a widow. She immediately risks leaving her daughter to go on a wild goose chase after this God-man Jesus. She just goes, thinking, this might be my last chance. This could be it. Second obstacle, beyond just being tired and saying forget about it, is the high potential for prejudice. Mark tells us very pointedly that this woman is a Gentile and specifically goes on to say that she's a Syrophoenician by birth. And he adds this detail very purposefully when he's calling our attention to something. In other words, this woman is a local. She's from Tyre. She's from this region. Tyre is the subject of many Old Testament prophecies, none of them good. They're all full of vengeance. 
because Tyre, they were historical oppressors of God's people to the north. Currently, at this time, Tyre would represent to the Jewish people the most intense form of pagan worship to tempt them. All right, there would be the neighbor, like Las Vegas nearby, be like, oh my gosh, it's just beyond our borders. We could go one night if you want, right? That would be Tyre. Always making fun of these religious people. Tyre was also so wealthy, they took produce grown from Galilee, and they stored up so much of it, and they kept it, even when Galilee would often go hungry. In other words, they had Galilee's bread. The stuff they home grew. So they were the historical, religious, and economic enemies. And according to the historian Josephus, also our bitterest enemies. If there's ever a person you knew not to ask a favor, right? If that's ever happened in your life, you needed something, you knew not to ask a favor, don't even bother, this would be them. It's not even worth it. Don't even ask. Such this was the position of this woman. Don't even ask this Galilean. The Galileans hate us. But this woman alone possesses the eye of faith. You say, but, but he's here. And he's got to be here for some reason. A Galilean in enemy territory. He's got to be here for a reason. I'll just go see. Though everyone else speculates he's there to retreat with his apostles, or it's a publicity stunt, she says, this man is good. If he just hears my story, I know he'll listen. So despite the obstacle of prejudice, she goes. Then thirdly, there's the obstacle that her request receives the silent treatment at first, right? This says in the Matthew version, verse 23, he did not answer her a word. So he's just like everybody else, right? People used to show up to help my daughter. Concerned neighbors would come offer food. The pagan priestess would come by to pray for us. Right, the local doctor would come by with some homemade remedies. One day, people stopped coming by. They walked by my house as if nobody lived there, as if I was invisible. Jesus heard my voice and my begging. He's just like everybody else. I'm invisible to him, only he's more cruel. Because he was supposed to be better than those people. Instead, she believes. She thinks he, he must have something better. So she keeps going. She keeps persisting. In fact, I can't help but wonder if this, as I studied this and meditated on this passage this week, if this woman is the inspiration for Jesus' parable of the persistent widow recorded in Luke 18. Right? Remember that widow who just keeps asking, keeps asking, keeps asking. And finally, the unjust judge says, fine, woman, have it. And Jesus concludes that parable saying, but will the Son of Man find such faith on the earth? He knew there was such faith on the earth, didn't he? And the Syrophoenician woman, she just wouldn't let go. Even though she gets the silent treatment. A fourth obstacle. They just keep on coming. Being told you're not first priority, but sloppy seconds. Now, you may have felt like you were second priority in a conversation with someone or in a, at a dinner, at a social function. You may have felt like you weren't your father's favorite you may have even perhaps felt like your pastor hurriedly dismissed your question or your uh, request, apparently, to get something more important. To get something more important. Maybe even I've done that to you. I'm going to go ahead and apologize for that right now. All right? So you have to forgive me. 
right? So there's that. You may have felt that way, but I know I haven't told anybody that you're not my first priority. I know I haven't said that to someone. Jesus tells her, you are not my first priority. Sorry. He tells her that. Let the children be fed first. I often wonder you know, how people we admire in the Bible would have been treated as like pastoral candidates in the church. Right? Like Abraham, you know, he fornicates with his uh, maidservant, the lady who cleans for them. David commits adultery with, uh, with a woman, then has her husband killed, right? Yeah, we're not going to hire you, David. Yet, man, after God's own heart, a hero. Even Jesus, add them to the list. I, I imagine saying to somebody like, you're not my first priority, sorry. And the elders getting a wind of, with of that and be like, yeah, that's a problem, dude. <laughs> but he tells her this. Imagine how that felt. And yet, she clings to him. She persists. Final obstacle here. Fifth obstacle. The pain of insult. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Again, in this analogy, it's pretty clear to this woman, I'm the dog here. How many of you have dogs? Raise your hand. Let's bring this. I almost called this sermon Good News for Dogs. But I thought you may have got the wrong impression. Like, you know, dogs go to heaven and this and that. I don't want to get into that. Now, how many of you prioritize your dog like it's a child? I know some of you do. I, 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 one of our elders in particular does. Um, raise your hand. You call him your baby. Some of you just need to be honest with yourself. All right. Now, in Jesus' day, dogs were a, not a favorable term. They were a term for Gentile scum, for people who are not God's people. Most dogs were roaming scavengers, feeding on garbage and dead birds and animals, that sort of thing. Yet, Jesus does use a slightly different word here, kunarion, different from kuna, which would have been these kind of big scavenger dogs. Kunarion was a small dog or a lap dog kept in the house. Nevertheless, doesn't take away the sting. He's calling a female a dog. So, let's add these things up. Exhausting ailment, a likely prejudice, silence. You have a problem? Okay, get in line, take a number, and you are a dog. How would you respond? There are a few ways here. I thought about this this week. How would I really respond? I think the three ways we would really respond. First, who are you? Right? Who are you to ignore me, to not get back with me? God to hear my prayer, but you clearly don't care about me, God. To call me your enemy, not like I said ought to hurt you, even though you call me that in the Bible. Dead, blind, deaf, lost, not not that bad. Who are you to call me that? Yet your word does. Two-faced, prostitute, weak, other words for us at different points in our life. Those words are in the Bible, but they got to apply to someone else, not to me. Who are you to say those to me? always someone else. I have a friend who apparently knew and followed God, and he believed he was trusting God and obeying God and honoring God with his life, and he shared with God his dream of glorifying him through sports to being this great soccer athlete, but he never made it. He didn't make it. He said, who is God to deny me my dreams? Who are you, God? If she would have been distracted by that kind of self-talk, 
She would have been distracted by the kind of God she first imagined, heard of, wished for. She would have missed the real Jesus in front of her, wouldn't she? Yet how often does that happen to us? Second thing, I think the way we might respond is who are they? Right? Who are those people? Those Israelites, those chosen people. Who are, who are those people? They don't assist you. In fact, they make your job more difficult. That's why you're out here after all. Yet you go after them. You seem to bless them. You show them favor. You grant them time and talents. They are your priority. She'd been distracted by comparing her merits, her lifestyle, her hard work to that of others. Again, she would have missed the real Jesus. But how often do we do that in our relationship with God, our non-relationship with God? Who am I would have been the last question you might ask. She could have walked away ashamed. Yeah, who am I to ask anything of this man, Jesus, this great prophet? I am the world's dog. I'll never be worthy enough for God. I'll never be the person he wants me to be. I never can quite clean up my act the way I know I should. She'd been distracted by her past, by her failings, maybe as a parent, by her hasty decisions that she now regrets. She would have missed the real Jesus. She would have walked away from the God-man who could help her right in front of her. But this woman didn't. She instead viewed each little crack that Jesus left open, not as an accident, but as an appointment. Not as an incidental, but she sees him with the eyes of faith. There's a chance here. There's a chance. I see a, a little window and he's left open. Jesus said, he said nothing to me, but he didn't say no. He said first, which means there's got to be a second. If he said there's a first, maybe I can be second. He said little house dog, not mangy street dog. Maybe there's something to that. She holds on by faith. She thinks to how, how even children feed scraps to little dogs under the table as she humbles herself and says, basically, I'm a dog. I'll take it. I'm a dog. But at least I'm the Savior's dog. I'll eat crumbs because they fall from the banqueting table, but it's the banqueting table of heaven. I'll take whatever you want to give me because I know you are good. She fills in every little crack with faith. And Jesus joyfully blesses her belief, her unyielding belief. He says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She goes home, finds a child lying in bed. The demon is gone. doesn't even need to visit her. Don't you see the smile, Jesus says, for that statement? I'm going to heal your daughter. There's no time like it in Mark's gospel where Jesus expresses such delight. It's amazing, this story. Jesus himself is the greatest obstacle to her belief in him. You see that? All, right, all these things, he tries to put up little obstacles. And not even Jesus himself can silence unyielding belief. That's amazing. How do you respond to this? I, I am I'm humbled. I am just absolutely humbled. My faith is so fickle based on God's response to me and what he does in my life to bless me. If I don't get answers quickly, I resign myself to God's fate. Fine. I resist all name-calling outside of son, heir, beloved. <laughs> any, any, any talk of sinner, right? Falling short of, oh, whoa, hey. If you don't give me, God, what I perceive as your best now, please just 
keep your sloppy seconds. I'll just go my own way. My faith is so fickle. I want this woman's unyielding belief. I want to lose myself in Jesus and hear what he has to say. To forget myself and hear what he is saying. But how? How do we do this? The Bible is very clear, friends, that faith, belief, trust cannot be created by us, but it has to be given by God. It's a gift. Right? Ephesians 2, 9, it's a gift. You can't manufacture belief into being. But the testimony of Scripture seems to suggest that by beholding God, by continually beholding God in His goodness, faith will spring up. It will enliven. It will expand in our life. And when we look and see the goodness of God, those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Psalm 34, 5. Psalm 123, 1 and 2. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who art enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of a servant looks to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shall be gracious to us. How well does that explain the woman of this story? She looks to Jesus, looks to Jesus, looks to Jesus until he shows her grace. It doesn't even matter what she shows him. Just that she won't let go until she gets the blessing and the grace to her. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face, those of us who trust Christ with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. It suggests that the more we behold Jesus and look to Jesus and his goodness, the more we change to be like him. One more. Because the supreme and surest example of the goodness of God is expressed through the cross of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, including, by the way, this Syrophoenician woman, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so hinders our progress. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before this. How do we do this? The author of Hebrews tells us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. See that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. He was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew it would be his afterwards. Now he's seated in the place of highest honor beside God's throne in heaven. Look to Jesus. Look to his goodness. That's how faith begins to spring up. That's how you become more like Jesus. That's how you start to forget self. You hear Jesus and walk like this woman where you see every little possibility of God's goodness in life. Let me offer you some suggestions to to start to get our eyes beholding the goodness of Jesus. I'll just give you three. First one, insist on your beggar status. You gotta insist that you're a beggar. Evangelism, sharing Christ with others, which we get to do through this Christianity Explorer, which has been so much fun, but it's often been described as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The problem is, as we move along in the Christian life, we all long to be ex-beggars. The apostles experienced this desire to be ex-beggars, right? They can't see how good Jesus has been to them from the start. And so they start to drift towards self-sufficiency. We've made it. 
We're finally with Jesus. We're good. Remember when Jesus says in verse 27, let the children be fed first. If you have an NIV translation, it's actually a little bit better translation. It says, first, let the children first eat all they want. Now, this is interesting. Eat all they want is the same phrase used in the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that? And the upcoming, we'll see this next week, feeding of the 4,000, where he says, eat and be satisfied. Eat all you want. In both cases, that means the apostles, remember in the 5,000 and 4,000, the disciples eat the bread and they have leftovers. That means in both cases, the apostle gets the children's food and the leftover scraps fed to the dogs. They're accepted by Jesus, taken along by Jesus. They get to be with him every day. They get both. They miss it. Because they don't want want to be stuck. They don't want to be known as fishermen or lowly despised tax collectors anymore. And so look, just real quickly with me, in chapter 8, verses 17 through 21, Jesus says to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you see? You're so blessed. You have me and your life. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts still hardened? Having eyes, don't you see? Ears, don't you hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves? All right, handed everything out. How many did I have left over? Twelve, Jesus. Right, and, and then seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of pieces did you take up? Seven, don't you see? You are so blessed. But you don't see it because you think you've made it. You think you've arrived. You think you have all the righteousness you need in and of yourself. This woman instead says, who cares? Who cares what I get? The children's bread, be satisfied, everything I want, I don't care. Jesus is so good, glorious, awesome. I'll take whatever he wants to give me because I'm a beggar. Ask God every day to, to reveal to you where you fall short, how you need from him. Paul says where sin increases, grace increases all the more. That doesn't mean sin more. It means become aware of your sin. That's the context there in Romans 5. The more the laws add and you see more sin, that means more grace. Because the more you recognize you need God in your life, ask him where you need him more. Ask him where you fall short. Admit that you're a beggar. Turn to your neighbor right now. Tell him you're a beggar. Go ahead. It's all right. Go right now. No, no. So some of you, you're resisting. You don't want to admit it. That's what I'm talking about. Don't let go of your beggar status. Second thing here, remind one another of the goodness of God. Remind one another of the goodness of God. I was speaking to a friend a few weeks ago about someone we both admire, and I commented on how great it would be to hire them as part of the church. It's kind of an offhand comment. And I also added, yeah, of course, too bad that we started a building fund, right? Need a new facility. To which they replied, hey, God's big enough to do both. And while we're not, don't worry, we're not thinking about hiring someone right now, but I needed to hear that. I just missed that completely. God's big enough to do both. Of course he is. I always limit God. And I need people to hear. I desperately needed to hear this. Don't stop. Please, those of you who've said when disappointment was due, man, God must have something better planned. You just experience deep disappointment. And you say, God must have something better planned. Don't stop saying that to us. And don't stop saying that to me. I need to hear that. If we furrow our brow or look at you skeptically like, oh, look, they're so cheery. That's not you. It's our unbelief sagging under the weight of your faith, the weight of your words. Don't stop. 
We need to hear the belief in the goodness of God that goes beyond the borders of normal. Many of you may have heard of the, the book Hiding Place by Corey Tinboom. It's an autobiography about a woman from Holland who hides Jews during World War II. She gets caught sent to a concentration camp. And she gets transported from a prison in Holland, this concentration, to a notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp. <clears throat> and while there, she gets a cot that she's going to have to share with two other women, first of all, and it's infested with fleas. Fleas just everywhere. Her sister Betsy is with her, and she is one of these people who sees the goodness of God in the smallest cracks available. So she insists that they give thanks to God for the fleas. She says, for they too are God's grace. Corey refuses. She says, I will not go to God with fleas. But they begin to hold services at night. They start to notice they can talk with other people about God. They start to hold worship services. They start to read the Bible. They start to share the gospel. And no one bothers them. And Corey wonders, why aren't people, why aren't the guards bothering us? They were so strict before. One day she overhears three guards talking about why they never went into those barracks. And they said, that place is littered with fleas. She remembered her sister's words and the goodness of God that they got to share the good news with all of these people, all of these women who came to trust and know Christ, who were on their way to death, but they were really on their way to life with Jesus. Please keep using the eyes of faith to help us see the goodness of God beyond the borders of normal. Remind us to thank him for fleas. Last thing, experience together the goodness of God. Plead with God and step out in faith to create a culture of freedom where we can express sin and weakness freely. We can be honest with one another about sin and weakness, but also intentionally go to the cross together. Both of those are crucial. You've got to have both together. And by the way, when you tell me your struggle, uh, don't just tell me your struggle with the fear of man, that you're too impatient, or that you just care too much. I'm one of those people who just, my, my biggest fault is I care too much. Please keep your mamby-pamby sins to yourself. All right, I, I mean, I want people who struggle with self-indulgence of anything over God, or you don't even want certain people in your life, and you feel guilty about that, or you're ashamed because you live a double life, or you do live to serve both God and money. Be honest with people, but also go to the cross with that honesty. I think Satan employs in nice churches like ours. You guys are, this is a nice, friendly, warm church. He likes to employ two lies, I think, that keep us from experiencing a fuller goodness of God together. The first is that love is over-sympathizing. But you know, you, you do work so hard. You do work so hard, though, even though you ignore your family. You, you work really hard for them. Or, you know, but you are new to the island, or, you know, no one can change overnight. And we stay there. That's what we offer to our friend. Sympathy has its place, but not without the sweet sting of the cross. You still got to go to the cross. It's still weakness. It's still falling short. And the second is this. Well, it's loving to avoid appearing holier than thou. So we say, you know, well, yeah, you shared that weakness with me or that sin. I hear you. I'll pray for you. Or, hey, are you part of a community group? You can share it there. (laughs) 
We don't, we don't want to say something about God or His goodness or how, you know, we should really pray about that. We should go to God with that. Because you don't want to appear holier than thou. The cross offers fresh starts and new beginnings. Let's go there. Let's remind ourselves of the patience of Jesus, the promise of forgiveness, and the power to change. Let's do that now. Father, we are aware that we are beggars, that we fall short, that we have messed up in our lives, and not just with the little stuff, Lord. Well, I wasn't nice enough this week, or I just, well, I really struggled this week to really think about you, God. But we have overindulged in our lives. We have treated people cruelly in our hearts. We, we've turned over bitterness towards others, maybe. We've ignored people who needed to hear the good news. Just flat out ignored them. Father, we are beggars before you this morning. We recognize it. But that's not such a bad place to be. We'll take anything you have to give us, starting with the forgiveness of Jesus. That happens because of the cross. The free forgiveness that we can have through the simplest of faith. We start there. Thank you for that. Thank you for every gift you give us. Help us to see your goodness more and more. Help us encourage one another with it. Help us remind each other of it. Help us experience it together as we share weakness, but also go to the cross together in life as a community. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.